Well, I don't tell many jokes, so that won't be a, a problem. So the way I understand it, you don't have to pay attention to Dave when he's here. Well, guys, like he said, I, well, do we need to? I'm okay. I'm gonna let you just do whatever you need to do to this microphone because um, sounds loud to me, but uh, just so that everybody can hear well. Um, I am David Richardson. I'm the small groups pastor at TBC. Um, well, community is what uh, uh, the point of of uh, my job is actually to see that people connect in community. Small groups is one of the forms that we use, but a lot of other things uh, fall under that also. But uh, today, I'm here to talk about predestination. Now, Dave asked me, you know, if I could, could do this topic, and uh, there, there's always a lot of apprehension that comes with doing this. Now, some of you guys may be very excited that our topic today is predestination. Some of you may be a little scared that today our topic is predestination, and some of you may be like my wife who says her head hurts when she thinks about predestination. Um. But there may be some of you guys out there that just don't have really much idea what uh, the idea of predestination is. So let's start out with the definition. Let's go to the next slide. Predestination is the concept that God chose those he was going to save before the creation of the world. Sometimes we use the phrase election regarding this. So I may interchange um, predestination and the doctrine of election when I'm up here. We're talking about the same thing with that. Um, how many of you guys have uh, struggled, thought through, even contemplated the doctrine of uh, predestination at some point in your lives? A handful of you. How many of them? How many of you guys have really never thought much about it? Okay, about fifty-fifty. We're somewhere fifty-fifty. Well, unfortunately, today we're going to uh, force you to to think about it just a little bit. Uh, this is a subject, a topic that's been debated throughout church history. It is disturbing to some. It is comforting to others. Some people find it very mysterious and frightening. Others find in it pieces that explain so much more of um, the Bible and, and the way things work. Um, in this short period of time that we've got, we can't really do it justice, and there's so many questions and so many things we're not going to be able to address. Uh, but uh, we are going to look at a few pieces. Uh, my, my intent is to take a question and let's do a five-minute overview of predestination, and then we're going to cycle back through, come up with a new question, and go a little deeper into some of the parts. My hope is not that you're going to understand all there is to know about predestination when you leave here today, because that would be foolish, but to at least give you um, a few pieces to the puzzle that maybe you hadn't thought of before, maybe you hadn't seen before, or hadn't had emphasized for you before, to help you as you go on in the months and years um, to come in your life. So uh, when Dave uh, asked me to, to talk about this. He told me y'all are doing a series called Ask Anything. I said, well, okay, well, what's the question you want me to address? And he said, well, you can pick any question. Ah, that doesn't work well for me. It's too many choices on the table. I kind of like it refined, so I thought about it for a little bit. And, and, and 
I decided that we'd start with this one question that has come up a number of times with folks. So let's go to the next one. Does God choose us or do we choose God? That's, that's typically the way a discussion on predestination or election is framed. Does God choose us or do we choose God? And I, and I, I look at that question and I think, well, that's a good one to start with. Um, it's one maybe you've thought of, but ultimately what we're going to find is it doesn't get us to where we need to be in, uh, to move forward with this discussion much. But it will serve as a good question for starting an overview. So when we look at the question, it says, does God choose us or do we choose God? There's really three parts to this. And there's two questions in there, right? You see the two questions? What's question number one? What's Right. And what's question number two? Yeah, so we've got, does God choose us or do we choose God? So the answer to both of those questions, I can answer yes. That's one of the reasons there's a bit of a problem in this question helping us move forward. Let's look at a couple of verses real quick. Next slide. The Bible very clearly talks about the idea that God has chosen us. You look in places like Ephesians 1, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. All throughout Scripture we see verses that talk about the fact that God chose us before the creation of the world. But all throughout Scripture we also find places like John 3.16, where it says, for God so loved the world. I, I don't need to read that. Y'all tell me, what is John 3.16? Right, you, you mumbled it greatly. So, yes. That whoever believes in him are the ones that will be saved. Scripture affirms all throughout the Bible that we have a responsibility to accept the gospel message. No one is saved apart from accepting the gospel message. So at this point, I'm not sure we moved too much uh, further forward in our discussion, but, but there was another part of that question, and it was the or. And we see that the or doesn't actually help us because they're both yes. So instead of the or, maybe what the or is intending for us to figure out is, so how are these two things related? And there are some passages of Scripture that can help us with how those things are related. Next screen. Places like 2 Thessalonians 2. It says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. What we, we don't just stop where it says God chose us to be saved. He not only chose us to be saved, but he chose how we would come to him. So the relationship between God's election and our choice is that God ordained that we would come to faith in him through faith. Now, so the the way we phrase that is God ordained not only the ends, but the means of our salvation. Now, that right there, if you had to sum up election, that's election in a nutshell. Five minutes, we covered the complete doctrine of election. God ordains us. We choose him. And the way that happens is he has ordained that that would come to pass in that way. Now, that's the summary of the doctrine of election. 
but I'm sure there are probably questions you still have. Am I right? Does that resolve it all for everybody? Does that resolve it all for you? I would hope not. If so, you're not very inquisitive folks, and I know there's more going on in your minds. Okay, you've got other questions. There's other things about it. So what we find is this doesn't go far enough in helping us understand it. So let's ask a different question and use a different question as a basis for moving forward. So why don't we ask it this way? Because at the end, all the discussions and debates and conversations on predestination are trying to address this question. And I'm going to assume we're all believers in here. Why are you saved and someone else is not? All the discussions of um, predestination and election are involved with answering this question. Why is one person saved and someone else not? Maybe you've got a brother or sister that has grown up in the same family and has responded differently to God than you have. Maybe you have friends that seem to have all of the same advantages and opportunities and they've heard the gospel just like you've heard the gospel. Some of you have responded to it and some have not. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and someone else, uh, or, or maybe you know people that grew up in a Christian home and have walked away from the gospel and someone else is raised in a home that doesn't know Christ. It's an atheistic home or in a false religion and they have come to faith. Why, if there are two people involved in maybe some false religion or atheistic environment, one chooses to accept Christ and one doesn't? It gets to the idea of, is there anything in the individual that is the reason for the distinction? Is it because you were smarter than the other person? Were you more humble did you better understand your sin? If you say, you know, because at times we may say something like that, well, yeah, I just better understood I was a sinner. That doesn't solve the problem. Why? Why did you better understand your need for a Savior than someone else? Were you smarter? We get back into the loop. Were you smarter? Were you more humble? Were you, what is it? We don't get um, the question resolved with that. Ultimately, what we get to is the question, does the reason you are saved or the reason one person is saved and another person is not, rely in or depend in any way on the individual, or is it with God alone? That's the question predestination addresses. That's where the tension begins to be felt more sharply. All right, so let's start with what we know about the condition of man as we go forward. So, next slide. What do we know about the condition of man? We all know this verse, right? This is another one like John 3.16 we could all quote. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We get that. We know, we've heard that a lot of times. But, but more importantly, for understanding the doc- doctrine of election, we need to understand what that means. And the Bible elaborates a lot on the condition of a man as a result of this. And this is fallen man. Next slide. Uh, we're not going to jump all over and look at all of these different passages, but if we were... This is just a sampling of the passages that talk about the condition of man. And we find out things like man is dead in transgression and sin. He follows the desires and thoughts of the flesh and the world, not the things of God. Every We see back in Genesis, um, both before the flood and after the flood, God 
talks about the condition of man. And what we find is nothing about the condition of man himself before the flood changed as a result of the flood. Man is still the same because verse uh, chapter 8 is God's evaluation of man after the flood. Every inclination of the heart of natural man is evil. By our very nature, we find out we are objects of God's wrath. We do not understand or seek God, and we have chosen to turn away from God. Okay, We've chosen to turn away from God. And that kind of tells us what our condition is. What we find out is when we look at all this stuff, we don't sin, or we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because in our nature, we are sinners. Okay? But if that's not bad enough, the Bible goes further in explaining our condition and our situation. Go to the next one. In places like Romans 8, the language changes a little bit. It talks about, in this particular verse, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. There's an interesting word in there. It talks about cannot. There are several places. Uh, there's a place that uses can. There's a place that says cannot there. Um, it's Well, it says nor can it do so, which is the idea of cannot. What is the difference between can and may? Any of you guys in I'm sure you've all taken English classes. What's the difference between can and may? Can is what? Can is indefinite. Ability. One talks about ability. The other talks about what? Permission. Can I go to the pencil sharpener? Well, I guess you can, but yes, you may. Okay, permission. Um, What it's talking about here is it's not that people do not submit to God's law because they don't have permission It's not that they don't please God because they don't have permission. It's because they do not have ability. Next slide. What we find out is if we start looking through Scripture, it repeatedly talks about that sinful man does not have the ability to come to God. Christ specifically in John 6 talks about that. They cannot come to me unless something else happens first. Cannot understand spiritual things. They consider them foolish. Cannot. Sinful man has no ability to see and respond to spiritual things. If you take the gospel to a cemetery of dead people, what is the reaction you expect to get? Nothing. That's physical death. In spiritual death, the Bible paints a picture that tells us we're going to get pretty much that same response from people that are spiritually dead. That's the picture God paints um, of man's condition. This is the idea of of depravity, the idea that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. You take somebody like Hitler or Osama bin, what's this generation's bad guy, Osama bin Laden or somebody, you know. Whoever this generation's bad guy is, my generation's, in in fact, it was Hitler. But even they weren't as bad as they possibly could be. Hitler didn't kill his mother. Okay, He could have been. It's not that he's as bad as he could be. It's not that any of us are as bad in our fallen state as we possibly could be. It's just that every aspect of us is tainted and affected by sin. And we cannot please God. Um, So here's our, our dilemma. The picture the Bible paints is that everyone 
uh, all of mankind, every uh, individual, fallen individual, is spiritually dead, under condemnation as a result of Adam's sin and our own. We're under the condemnation of, of sin and on a path that leads to hell. This is the dilemma the Bible paints okay, of, of, of sinful man. Now, at this point, typically what happens in the discussion of the doctrine of election is we reach for one of two trump cards we think we've got. One of two trump cards we think we've got. The first one, and hopefully we'll have time to get to the second one, but the first one we reach into our pocket and pull out is, but what about our free will? Next slide. Oh, oh, there we go. You're there. What about our free will? That seems to be the answer to get us out of any box that we think we're stuck in sometimes in a lot of doctrines in, in Scripture. We'll reach in and, and start talking about our free will. Surely, even though we're spiritually dead, we're on our, our way justly condemned, on our way to hell, our free will is that thing which separates us from another. We can just say, my will versus this other person's will, I chose to do such and such. Well, let's talk a little bit about the will. I don't know if you've had classes in upper high school or any place where maybe you've addressed any of the thoughts of the will. This may be new to you. So let's, uh, let's talk about the will. Let's go to the next slide. Let's define it first. If I were just to catch you in the hallway and ask you to define free will, most of you would really struggle to come up with a definition because you don't really think much. You kind of feel like you've got it, but you don't really think much about what the freedom or what your will actually is. Well, throughout history, uh, a lot of this was done before the invention of television, back when people had time to think a lot more instead of doing some of the stuff we do today, cell phones and whatever. Guys just sit around all day and think about this kind of stuff. Well, over the years, uh, some really good thought has been put into the will by some great thinkers in the past. We'll talk about one of them here in a minute. But basically, a, a way of viewing the will is the will is the ability to choose what we want to choose from available options based on our own desires or inclinations at the moment of decision. So let's talk about that for a second. The ability to choose what we want to choose from available options. Do I have to have any number of options available for me to exercise free will? Do I have to have every possible dessert option out there available for me to make a choice? No. I, I just Between the available options, you got chocolate pie, you got lemon pie, and you've got an ability to choose between those. I don't have to have infinite number of options. My, the will operates regardless of what the options I've, I've got are. I have an ability to choose between those based on what I want, what my desire is, what my inclination is. Do I like this or do I want that? Okay? We can do any number of examples of how the will works in that uh, using those, those kinds of, uh, of definitions. Now, let's go to the next slide. Some guys, as they've thought through this, have, have worked really hard over history. Guys like St. Augustine back from the 4th century, Martin Luther in the 16th century, um, and a guy named Jonathan Edwards in the 17th century. Or I guess technically that's the 18th century, isn't it? 1703 starts, that's in the 18th century. Um, these guys have thought through this a lot and, and have broken down and made some distinctions in the will. Now, what John, using the language of Jonathan Edwards... Um, he broke the will into two pieces. He said there is a natural ability, which is the ability to choose what we want to choose. You have a natural ability to walk. You have a natural ability to breathe air. 
A fish has a natural ability to breathe water and take the air from the water. Natural ability is a part of being alive um, and, and, and natural to you as a created individual. Um, do you have the ability to fly? Well, not on your own. You have to go get in a plane. So we've, you know, part of our abilities, we're able to build planes. But naturally, I do not have an ability to fly. No matter how fast I run and leap off this stage, I'm coming crashing down. Okay, I don't have the ability to fly. It's not that I can do anything, but there, I have natural ability to do certain things. And one of the things that Jonathan Edwards talked about was you, we have a natural ability, a will, that allows us to make choices, a faculty that allows us to decide between options. But he said there's another part of the will that affects how we, we choose. And he called it moral ability. Um, for our purposes initially, let's talk about it in terms different than just what you think of as moral. Let's talk about it as the component associated with our desires or what we want. Okay? So we make those decisions, but what affects our decision is what we want. I will pick lemon pie or chocolate pie based on what I want. Now, lots of things may go into what I want. And I might even choose the one that I like the taste of least for some other reason. I personally don't like chocolate. So it's very easy. I'm always going to pick the lemon pie. Usually somebody asks me, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you don't like chocolate. Well, there must be something wrong with me. Just an issue I've got. I don't like chocolate. But maybe you like both of them. But maybe you slightly prefer lemon. Okay, so your preference is for lemon pie. But maybe you saw something, somebody, you saw a fly land on the chocolate. So now your strong desire and inclination is to not have the one the fly landed on. Okay, so you still choose according to what you want, what you desire. All right, maybe you just had a lot of lemon pie lately and you just, for that reason, choose uh, the chocolate. For whatever, your desires, that's that, what the component talked about, the moral ability. We will choose, we have the ability to make choices, but it is influenced by, significantly influenced by our desires. So, let's, let's think through this a little more. The, uh, I, have the, I see phones laying around the table, pens, pencils, whatever. Let's say, do you have the choice, the freedom, to choose to pick that up or not pick that up? Not a trick question. Yeah, you can pick it up or not. You'll still act according to your desires, okay, or your inclinations, but you can pick it up or not pick it up. In that particular case, moral ability doesn't, we don't really feel the tension of that much. It's more just a matter of acting, you know, it's kind of in the background. We just do those, and, and it's, it's picking up, putting down a pencil, doing whatever. It's an act of the will. It's free, but we're not influenced heavily by our moral ability. But let's move this into some other examples. Now, see, I don't like chocolate pie, but you all have your own things you don't like. Something like maybe asparagus. Maybe you don't like asparagus. Maybe, you know, some of you don't like ketchup. You know, what, whatever the thing is that you don't like, think about that in your mind right now. And then think, do you have the freedom to choose right now by an act of your will that you really do like that? Can you just all of a sudden think, yeah, I do like that. I really wish I had some of that right now. You might could say that, but you can't feel that, can you? Another example. Now, a lot of people in our, in our families, sometimes there's tension, so I'm going to move this out a little bit. In our families, um, 
you know, sometimes there's tensions with mom and dad, but everybody loves their grandmother, right? Is that one? Is that a safe one? We all love grandma, okay? Even if you're having a bad day at home with mom and dad right now, we always love grandma. So by an act of your will, can you choose not to love grandma? It sounds weird, doesn't it? The question sounds weird. Like, how is this a matter of choice? I don't, I don't see it. But you see the influences that your desires and those things that you want, those things that are in you that make up your, your, your being and your character, you see how they influence your ability to choose. Now, is accepting the gospel more like picking up a pencil or loving grandma? It's a whole lot more like loving grandma than it is picking up a pencil. Okay? Now, what we end up with, let's go to the next slide, I think, is the dilemma back up. Here's the situation we've got with the dilemma. All of mankind spiritually dead, we saw this while ago, under condemnation and freely choosing a path that leads to hell. And you know what? Just like you can't choose in your mind just all of a sudden to turn on and off your love for grandma, spiritual man cannot choose to receive the gospel, cannot love God. He's spiritually dead. He will not make that choice. I can't make myself like chocolate pie. I know that's really difficult for some of you guys. You're stuck on that. Move on. Move on from that. You can't make yourself incline your heart to something that you have no natural desire or inclination for. Um, So this is the situation we're left with. Our free will doesn't get us out because our free will... What Jonathan Edwards talked about was we have the freedom of the will. What has happened as a result of sin is our moral ability has been corrupted. We no longer desire the things of God. We no longer desire Him. We no longer see Him as beautiful. And we, as it talks about in Romans, we've all chosen to turn away. That's what our free will gets us in this economy where we are fallen and unable to help ourselves. Now, before we move on, what if God just walked away? What if God saw this is our condition, we've all freely chosen to reject Him, we're all hostile to Him, and He just stepped back and let us go? What would we be receiving? What is that called? If you get what's deserved, what is that? I hear it whispered. Say it out loud. Justice. What if God just walked away and let us all receive justice? Would God be guilty of anything wrong? What do you think? I mean... It's justice. We're getting what we deserve. It's the just penalty for our sin. See, a lot of times when we get in the discussion of predestination, we get hung up on the wrong question. We get hung up on the question, 
Why doesn't God do some things like I think he ought to and maybe save everybody or make it this way or make it that way? That's the wrong question. The real question when we look at it is, we hate him. We're hostile to him. By our very nature, we're opposed to God. Why would God save anyone? It's not why did he save everyone. It's the wrong question. It's why would he save anyone? Is it owed to us? Is it required? Some of you have a problem with that. Some, some of you, and I'll admit, we all will struggle with this at times because our perspective is not in an ideal situation. It's like talking to the inmates about the rules of the prison. They would have some different ideas on the way things ought to be run. But their perspective is distorted. A lot of times we don't grasp the severity of sin. We think, you know, yeah, there's mass murder and this, these kinds of sins, and then there's little white lies. And really, we tend to put, we put our, our sin before God mostly in the category of little white lies. The punishment just seems so extreme. That's because we're the prisoners in the asylum. Of course, we don't think we're that bad. Because we're our only reference point of what's good. And compared to each other, maybe we're not so bad. But that's not the standard. Ultimately, um, God's standard is the one that applies. And all of our sins, our little white lies, are the equivalent in God's economy of heinous crimes. There's a holy God and we've offended. Holy God, we have have brought... um, unholiness into his presence. Now, let's go next slide. But there is hope, and God did choose to do something different. Let's look in John 6. um, Dan mentioned John 6 last week. I was in here listening, and uh, uh, Dan mentioned John 6. Chapter 6 of John is a really interesting chapter. It's a really uh, funny chapter, actually, if you kind of read what's going on behind the scenes. In the beginning, Jesus is uh, feeding the 5,000. He's feeding 5,000 on, on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and all these people are being fed. Then when he's done that, he gets in a boat that evening and crosses to the other side. And they wake up the next day, and where's Jesus? He fed us, 5,000 of us, out of next to nothing. And what do they do? Well, what you, when you read, what you, you see is they all chased him around. They, they were on foot. They ran around the other way to catch him on the other side. And when they find him over there, this is where these verses start to pick up, they're like, they're like like wanting to make him king. This guy can feed us. You know, that may not be a big deal to you today in this culture, but in that culture, a guy that can provide food, that's something special. They're wanting to make him king. He's telling them, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. He tells them in other places, you can't come to me. He's explaining to his disciples and to these folks out there, look, these people are coming, they don't really believe. They can't unless God does something. Unless, and the words that is used here in John is unless uh, they can't come to me unless the Father draws them. In another place, 
They can't come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And that kind of gives us this picture of God must do something. God must intervene. We can't. Our free will won't even allow us to respond to him. Nothing. We're dead. We're in the cemetery. But God interjects himself and does something. Um, In the words of Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. Let's go to the next slide. And then what are the effects of what God does? He says in John 6, in that same passage where he's talking to these folks, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never drive away. In other words, he enables them, and when he enables them, all of a sudden, it's beautiful. All of a sudden, Christ is seen more clearly, and they respond, and they come, and he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We saw uh, in the sermon, I think it was last week, Chase was preaching at the end of Acts 13, you saw a passage that relates to this. In Acts 13, 48, it said, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All of those that God enabled come. And Jesus never loses them. Um, They can't come until God does something and then he enables them. Uh, God chooses it, makes it happen. Our belief, like we saw in that first part, comes forth from his actions. Um, this upsets some folks because they, they, they look at this and it makes them angry. Um, the concept of, of election in this manner makes, makes maybe some of you in here anger, angry. Um, it may even make you think, look, you know, I'm still asking the other question. Why doesn't God save everyone? I'm sorry. There is no solution in any view or option of election, doctrine of predestination. There is no option that, that, that solves that problem. There's no solution. There's no debate. part of the debate. Unless you just say, really, all of this is, 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 is wrong, and God just saves everybody. I know the Bible didn't say that, but I just believe it. Other than that, no matter what you deal with, you have to deal with everyone isn't saved. And this will make some of you, you struggle with this, and it makes you angry, and I get that. But what we have to be careful is to be faithful to the testimony of Scripture and not try and create God over in our image, in the image we would make him into. Because there is a reality out there. We don't get to determine what that reality is. We don't get to rearrange things in the world. You know, if you're really upset with gravity, I'm sorry, but you can't. It's real whether you want to believe in it or not. Gravity is real. And with predestination, the things you're going to have to deal with in your life as you go forward is um, not whether or not you believe in predestination. If you're a believer, if you're faithful to the Scripture, that's not an option. You have to believe in predestination. You've got some flexibility, though, in what you believe about it. But as you struggle with what you're going to believe about predestination, let me encourage you to be faithful to Scripture and to not try to create God in your image. Now, let's go to the next slide real quick. 
So when we address the question, why are you saved and someone else not? When we address the question, is there anything in me that makes God choose me over someone else? Let's go to the next slide. I'd refer you to Ephesians 1 and 2. It's actually a great place to look at for... um, for all this, this topic. But in Ephesians 2, it says, and, I, and we've cut a lot out so we don't have to read the whole 10 verses here. But it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You were dead. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he did not have to do this, but he's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace means something you didn't deserve. Grace is something you didn't merit. It is by grace you've been saved. He repeats it, for it is by grace you've been saved. Through faith, faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. In a couple of weeks, we'll look in um, Acts 18 in, in the main service, and uh, we'll hear, we'll reach a passage where he talks about these... Uh, Believers that it talks about it in chapter 18 of Acts by that had by grace had believed, okay by grace had believed God's grace enabling them to believe. So ultimately, does it? Let's go one more. Does it reside in any way with me? Let's go next slide. Does it reside in any way with me? No, it doesn't reside in me. It is purely by His grace. That we are saved. That's why the Bible doesn't say you can't boast because it's in bad form. It doesn't say you can't boast because it's not polite. It says you can't boast because it's not true. It is of grace that we have been saved. Now, um, I want to address real quickly, we've got just a few minutes. I want to address real quickly the other trump card we like to pull out. The first trump card is, well, my free will. Okay, and we talked about how uh, Jonathan Edwards explained that a little bit, that that really isn't that good a trump card because our free will will choose to go to hell too. Okay? Because it's not like picking up a pencil. It's like loving your grandmother. The second trump card that comes up is, well, God just kind of looked through time out there and chose based on foreknowledge. Who would believe him? And he picks them. Well, there's a couple of reasons that that's a problem. One is, for even God's foreknowledge to see us choose him, it requires that we have the ability to choose him. And the problem we got is, is that's not what Scripture tells us. So we have to come up with some way to say everybody gets undead enough to choose him. And some, some folks will pick that as an option. I'll just tell you, sounds great, but I can't find it anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't talk about our freedom in Scripture. It talks about our responsibility for our actions. Okay? And so I don't, I don't find that. But that's one thing you have to do is you've got to get everybody savable. The other thing you've got to do is you've got to kind of not pay too close attention to what the words mean. Because foreknowledge is used a little differently in Scripture than folks sometimes understand. It's this idea of loving beforehand, this idea of, 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 of loving um, ahead. 
of intimately knowing. Uh, scripture talks about how God, in one place it uses the word foreknowledge of God of Jesus. It isn't this idea that God looked through time and knew what Jesus would choose to do. It's this picture of God knew him. Foreknow in the sense of intimate knowing and relationship and, and, and knowledge. In the Old Testament, God says uh, in, a related, in the related Hebrew word, he told, tells Israel, of all the nations on the earth, I knew you. Well, that mean, look, I looked through time and the only ones on the whole world I could really foresee anything about was you. I didn't know anybody else. No, God knew Israel differently. He saw them and chose to put his electing love on Israel, which, by the way, we don't have nearly as big of a problem with God choosing Israel, do we? In the Old Testament, we don't get too worked up over that as we do election in the New Testament. But it's this idea that God loves and knows us intimately. When we are foreknown by God, it's not that he knew some callously what we would do. We are foreknown by God in the sense of he looked and he loves us for whatever reasons that reside only in him. But here's the, the real leap we've got to do with the language. Predestined. Here's the deal. College basketball is going to be going on today, and I'm going to tell you, I can predestine all the winners in all the basketball games for the rest of the season. That'd be a pretty impressive claim, and if I could pull that off, that'd be pretty impressive. But what if, really, I had this time travel machine, and I was just going down there, and I read all the papers later, and I came back, and I was telling you I was predestining them. Would you have a problem with the language I was choosing to use? Would that seem a little deceptive? To say I'm predestining, but really, (laughs) I was just kind of looking and I read the papers. The problem with foreknowledge is that it doesn't really fit the language used in Scripture. Yes, God has foreknowledge of of the future. He knows what's going to happen. But he isn't basing his actions on what we do. He doesn't say, who chooses me? Oh, you chose me? I'm going to slap my title of I chose you on you. He doesn't work like that. The actual word um, is a much more active word. In Greek, it's prohorizo. And it's the idea of beforehand to actively determine or ordain. So to go to foreknowledge, we have to actually choose to kind of be a little loose with the language. Um, Regardless as you struggle with these things going on in your life, um, there's one thing I want to leave you with here, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. And I'll turn you back to your tables to, if you've got time for a little discussion there. I mentioned Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through about 14, that's a, that's a unique passage in Scripture. Chapter, uh, verse, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, in English we look at that and it's this big old long passage where he talks about election a lot. In Greek, it's one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. The longest sentence in the, New, uh, in, the in the Bible is, is specifically the New Testament. And uh, what we find in there is God, Paul is talking about election. And he goes through there, and he, it's like he brings up, you know, praising God for election. And he just kind of starts to get caught up in it. When he starts thinking about the mercy he's been shown and the grace God has shown us and, and the purposes God is accomplishing through election. And he just keeps heaping praise on God, clause after clause. He didn't stop to take a breath and put a period. 
He just keeps going. So Paul, election, predestination, whatever Paul thought about it, it wasn't something that was debatable or offensive or hard for him. It was something that caused the reaction in Paul to be worship and praise of God. However you struggle through the doctrine of election, whatever you think about it, my challenge to you is to keep working till you get to that place where when you think of election, it makes you want to praise God. It makes you want to worship. It makes you exalt Him. Because until we've reached that point, we still don't fully see things through that biblical grid. I know we didn't answer all your questions. I know most likely we just probably raised a bunch of new ones. Um, but that's okay. This is going to be something you'll have opportunities to think through throughout your life. Uh, you won't arrive next week with all your answers. Uh, people have spent years, lifetimes, plumbing the riches of the incomprehensibleness of God, that the idea that we cannot fully grasp all the things of God. It's okay to dwell in the mystery of God. And, uh, you know, just don't be afraid, though, to embrace what Scripture tells you about Him, even when you don't understand it, because He is a God that we know loves us, has shown us great mercy. We may not understand all the aspects of it, but we do know our God is good, and He loves us. Guys, I'll turn you back to your table. Thank you for letting me spend time with you guys this morning. David, do you have any more of the question sheets? I think a couple of the tables don't have them. Yeah, any more of the sheets? Okay, if anyone doesn't have a questions, there's some over here.